Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed Himself through Scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant Word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Would you open up your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 8? While you're turning there, let me remind you of the context that we're going to read this morning. The writer of the book of Hebrews has been comparing the Old Testament priesthood with Christ, our great high priest. What has been in the tabernacle and the temple and the sacrifices and those who are offering the sacrifices for the forgiveness of the sins of the people has all been a shadow pointing forward, pointing upward to the finished work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. So would you stand together with me as we show honor to the word of the Lord? We're going to read all of Hebrews chapter 8 this morning, and because he's visiting with us home uh, on spring break from Bible college, I've asked Avery Nickham if he would come and read the scripture to us. Hebrews chapter 8, Jesus high priest of a better covenant. Now the point in the, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See see that you make everything according to the pattern that, that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on, the promises, on better promises. For if that the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds faults with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenants, so, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, for from the least of 
least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that in uncertain days, it is the anchor for our soul. Thank you, Lord, that it is unchanging just as your nature and character is unchanging. And therefore, we can have hope that our God rules all things, that our God has given us better promises in the new covenant in Christ that we can cling to. So we pray now, God, open our hearts and minds to your word. Speak to us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want to confess that this sermon is a little difficult, partially because we were visiting Aiden uh, on his spring break down in Florida this past week. So uh, the time of preparation felt a little compacted for me, but also because this is, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 8 for the next two weeks. And we're going to be overlapping quite a bit, but next week when you come back, we're going to be talking about the new covenant and sort of filling out more of that. So one of the difficulties is we're not going to be able to go verse by verse through the whole thing, otherwise we just have the same sermon two weeks in a row. So there's going to be a little bit of skipping around this morning. Before we jump in, I want us to ask the question, especially maybe for the kids who are in the room, what is a covenant? This whole thing, uh, the writer of the Hebrews is talking about a covenant, that God is making a covenant with his people. So what, what is a covenant? That's not a word we use much today. When you hear the word covenant, I want you to think of the word agreement. Just some synonyms here. Uh, a contract. Uh, some sort of, we've agreed upon this and it defines our relationship with each other, our roles and responsibilities with each other. And here's what we read in the text. Uh, part of God's end of that covenant is he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, when you think about a covenant contract, don't think about a contract like one you would sign when you go to buy a car or a house. Uh, those are conditional covenants, conditional contracts that say, if you keep your end of the bargain, you can have this car. If you keep your end of the bargain, you can have this house, whatever it is that you wanted. Again, that's conditional covenant. Now, there's a principle we find throughout the Scripture, and that is full obedience leads to blessing, while rebellion leads to suffering and separation. Let me say that one more time. This principle that we find in Scripture, applicable to our lives, full obedience leads to blessing, while rebellion leads to suffering and ultimately separation. So when, as Christians, we rebel against the will of God, we rebel against what God has commanded of us in his word, it will lead to suffering in our lives. We're not doing things the way that God said it should be done. And just because of that, it will lead to pain and uncomfortableness. But God uses that. God bends that to bring us to not only true repentance, but a deeper trust in him. Every son that the Father loves, he chastises, he disciplines. And yet that's not the kind of covenant that we find in the new covenant when it comes to salvation. A conditional covenant. If you do this, if you live like this, if you keep this law perfectly, 
I will be your God and you will be my people. No, this is God saying, I have chosen as a father. Don't, don't think a contract in buying a house or a car. Think a contract like a will where a father passes away, and before he does, he says, out of the riches that I have, out of that which is mine, I'm going to give this because of relationship to my son, to my daughter, to that who has been like one of my family, and now in giving this, I am making you part of the family. That's, that's part, I think, of what we find in the New Covenant as God the Father wills to his people that which is his. The salvation that belongs to him and not to us based on our merit or good works. This entire section of Hebrews chapter 8 is startling. It is, it is stark. It, this, this book is called what again? Help me out. Hebrews. You, you did poorly. All right, so this book, this book is called what again? Help me out. Hebrews. Uh, so pop quiz class, who was this written to? Hebrews, the, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people who have grown up in the tradition of this great Abrahamic line of the promises of God, the law of God, the sacrifices ordained by God for the forgiveness of sins. Their entire religion, in fact, their entire cultural identity has been based on a series of covenants that God made with their forefathers. The covenant God made with Noah, the covenant God made with Abraham, the covenant God made through Moses in giving the law. This is what defined them. It's what they cling to in dark days and, in fact, dark years. The history of the Jewish people was not chicken pocked with dark days. It was marked with giant blacks of, black marks of dark years, centuries. Christian, what defines you when you walk through a dark and difficult season? What do you cling to when tough times come? The Jewish people had literally centuries of oppression, centuries of subjugation. People like the Babylonians came in, the Assyrians came in, the Greeks came in. They didn't conquer, but their, their culture sort of infiltrated and spread into the Jewish cultural identity. And now, at the time that this book is written, the Romans have invaded and conquered and are ruling over the people of Israel. Here was the pattern they saw again and again. Invasion and exile. This is ours. This is our home. So uh, proud Americans, think about this. Someone invades your home. Not, not just your town. They invade your home. They, they take over your personal space. And they either push you out or push you under their new way of living. This was the Jewish story for about 700 years leading up to the time of the writing of this book. In that time, they clung to the promise of Messiah. One is coming who will make this right. One is coming who will be our Savior and Redeemer. Until that time, we wait because we know we are God's chosen people. That was all that they had. That was all that they knew to cling to. And now, right, I want you to get how shocking Hebrews chapter 8 is. And now, you're going to tell me that all of that was a shadow? pointing to something else? Here's what we say in response to that. We love this shadow. 
This is a shadow we can get our hands on. These are laws we can follow. These are sacrifices we can make. We can keep going in dark days because we have something tangible we can wrap our hands on. And now to this dispersed crowd of Hebrews, the writer of this book says there's a new covenant. There's a better covenant. Hey, anybody had a discussion with something? How many of us just love change? Anybody? Anybody here is just, you know what, I, I love to just change things up. Something you're used to, something that's normal for you, and, and someone comes along and says, oh, I have something better. You should abandon what you have and cling to that which is better. And we say, no, thank you, not interested. Yeah, it might save me a little time, might save me a little convenience, but I, I'm comfortable with this. And the writer of the Hebrews comes and says, there's a new covenant. But listen to me, if there's no sacrifices because Christ is the fulfillment of that, if there's no temple because Christ is the fulfillment of that, it makes me sad, it grieves my heart when Christ followers start putting their hope, start setting their spiritual watches by things like, when are they going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem? Oh, and by the way, I read an article online that they're, they're already breeding the red heifer so that we can sacrifice that and consecrate the temple. Listen, Christ is the sacrifice. We never go back. It would be a dishonor to the sacrifice of Christ if we fixed our gaze on a temple and some animal sacrifice as if that was our hope for the future. Listen, Christian, Christ is our hope. He is our sacrifice once for all. To those who would say that, I would say you're missing the point. I think the writer to the Hebrews would leap through history and say to us, you're missing the point, whatever may come in the future. For those who are in the new covenant, we look to Christ. Verse 1 in Hebrews 8. Now this is the point of what we're saying. It's this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. Everything that has been said previously, whether it's in chapter 7 or the chapters leading up to this, that Jesus is greater than the angels, or Jesus is superior to Moses or superior to Abraham. In chapter 7, Jesus is superior to the priests and their sacrifices. He's, he's basically saying this, these things have never been enough. They weren't bad, they were just inadequate, they were incomplete. There's something better. There's someone better. And so he says, now this is the point of what we're saying. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Now think about this. These Hebrew people had tremendous experience with priests. Whether it was going to the synagogue or maybe even just once a year making a pilgrimage to the temple, they knew what a priest looked like and they knew what his job looked like and they had never seen a priest sit down, ever. The priest was always on the job. He was always standing at the altar, always sacrificing an animal. This was an ongoing, never-ending job because as soon as that sacrifice was made, there were new sins to be Covered. There were new sins. There were more sins as they covered the sins of an entire nation. This was a never-ending job for the priest. They never sat down but Jesus. 
is seated at the right hand of the divine king. He is now king and priest. Seated at the right hand of the, of the throne of majesty. This is actually a picture of him as king, not as priest. So he said he is, he is the greater high priest, and now he said he's the king high priest. That was never supposed to happen in Israel. As we have a separation of powers in the United States, so God built that into the law of the people of Israel. There was to be a separation, never a king priest. In fact, we see judgment coming in the Old Testament when someone tried to blur those lines. But now, the work of Christ as priest, as king, winning for us our salvation is finished forever. And he is Seated. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But when this priest, that's Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is a different picture from anything they've ever seen of a priest before. His work as Savior is complete for all eternity. And yet his work as intercessor on our behalf is still continuing even now. Even now, as he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, he intercedes for those who are his own and his work as triumphant king in placing his enemies under his feet, culminating in his triumphant return in the second coming as a fixed and certain reality. We don't see the fulfillment of that one yet, but it is finished. We therefore as those who live on this side of the cross have no need for a mediator, someone to stand between us and God. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, there is one mediator between man and God, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. We have no need for a priest to stand as mediator between man and God. Actually, I read the wrong scripture. That was 1 Timothy 2.5. Uh, the one mediator between God and man. Uh, here's why I mentioned the James one. A lot of times when Protestants say we have no need for a priest, we almost reflexively follow it up with this. I don't have to confess my sins to a priest. I can confess my sins to God. Anybody ever heard that before? Anybody ever said that before? You just pointed to the wrong part of the priesthood as a Protestant. Because James 5.16 actually tells us that we are to confess our sins one to another. Pray for one another that we might be healed. That part of confessing is just fine. Here's what we never, ever need. Someone to stand between me and my sins and God and say, On behalf of God, I declare you forgiven. On behalf of God, I'm offering the sacrifice within the Eucharist or anything else on your behalf that God might be pleased with you. Christ has finished that work, and so we no longer need a priest. What we do need to do a much better job in the Protestant church is confessing and living in community. Just a little soapbox there. With Christ our intercessor, we pray in no other name. We do not pray in the name of saints or angels but Christ alone. Hey, I think most of us in this room are used to wrapping up our prayer with, in Jesus' name, amen. And we, we either have one or two, and I think relatively unhelpful, maybe even bad habits. Uh, one is, this is just language that we've heard. We, we've heard people pray like this so much that we know at the end of the prayer, you're supposed to say, in Jesus' name, amen. 
It's almost meaningless to us. We just know for some reason you're supposed to tag that on the end. Right? We're not even sure what the word amen means. Uh, by the way, it means it may it, let it be so. Or it, here's, I think, a worse mistake. And that is we think that when we say in Jesus' name at the end, we now wield some special power over God. That God has to do what we're saying because I used the magic word in Jesus' name. And there's, there's been songs and sermons dedicated to, hey, if we'll just attach Jesus' name to things, that we will have power. No, here, here's what he's saying when it, we're commanded to pray in his name. We don't have any other way to come before the Father. Today, if you decided, I want to take a handwritten note to the President of the United States, they wouldn't let you in. If you decided, I, I don't want to take a note, I want to go and whisper it in his ear. I immediately regret those words. <laughs> they would not let that happen. Even if he may like it, they wouldn't let it happen. Here's what you have to have. If you want to see the president, you have to have a way in. You have to have someone who has the right and authority to get you in the door. And what Jesus says is, if you are in Christ, if my righteousness has been applied to you, then you don't come in your name before the Father. You come in my name before the Father. And it's actually just that intimate as coming and whispering something in the ear of our Father. That He listens. The one who you have no access to except in Christ. He is Father. He is Abba who cares deeply. Praying in any other name. Whether it is through a mediator or an angel or a saint is slanderous to the efficacy of Christ as intercessor. He's the only one who grants us access to the Father. The end of verse 1 says, this is in heaven. He's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. If you skip down to verse 5, they serve in a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So kids, on your coloring page this week, half of it is blank. Because you have a church on one side and then a blank spot on the other side. Here's what I want you to do. As carefully and as exactly as you can, I want you to copy that church onto the blank side. Oh, we've already got a demonstration going on there. They're already doing it. Uh, because this is what was commanded of God's people. Here is the reality of the throne of God, of the temple of God in heaven. I want you to follow every detail, Moses, that I have given to you. Now, don't miss this. There's sometimes, anybody else, maybe it's just me. Sometimes you sit in church and the pastor just sort of seems to be droning on and you kind of miss a little bit of what he is saying and then he said something weird about a tent and a pattern and you're like, I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, I'll catch up later. Don't do that. Don't do that right now because God has given specific instructions to Moses about an earthly tent 
where God would meet with his people, where sacrifices for sin would satisfy the wrath of God, but it's pointing to something. It's pointing to a true sanctuary, a true altar, a true place where Christ wins for us our salvation that is not on this earth. So where is it? The end of verse 1 tells us in heaven. If you miss this, here's why I say don't check out, don't miss this. If you miss this, then this room becomes our sanctuary. And I'll just tell you, I make it weird and awkward all the time because I try really hard to never call this room the sanctuary because it's not. It may be a bad copy of it. In fact, at one point it was just an old smelly gym. We have a true sanctuary in the presence of God with better promises and better sacrifices. If we miss this, then this building becomes our temple or our church. It is not. Because the Holy Spirit dwells within your heart, you're the church. By the way, that that means it actually matters when you skip the church and decide to sleep in on a Sunday. You're missing out, and we're missing out, because it's not this building. Instead, Oh, I love this song that we sing here. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest, our perfect intercessor. And add to that, because the Holy Spirit indwells the hearts of believers, our very bodies are now temples of God where he meets with us. This is not an earthly reality, but a heaven reality. And we're going to talk about that more next week. Look at verse 4. This is why this is important. Now, if he were on earth, he's talking about Jesus here, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. This is strange. In a day where you can literally say that you identify as anything, and if anyone disagrees with you, uh, they're they're obviously hateful of you and they're, they're judging you and they're blocking your abilities. No, under the Jewish law, there were really strict requirements of who could be a priest and who couldn't be a priest. And if this was an earthly priesthood, Jesus was disqualified. How weird is that? Why? Well, because for millennia, the Jewish people could directly trace their priesthood back to Aaron, back to Aaron Moses' brother back to the tribe of Levi. Of the 12 tribes, the Levites were the only ones given the responsibility and permitted to serve as priests. And Jesus was from what tribe? Come on, anybody know? Judah. By the way, Judah is the tribe that King David comes from. And all of the uh, kings that followed after him. This is not an earthly kingdom. This is a new heavenly kingdom, a new covenant a new priesthood. <laughs> but there's a, there's a phrase that we, we hear quite a bit, thinking about heaven and earth. Anybody ever heard this one before? That person is so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Anybody ever heard that? <sighs> it's so frustrating. All that person does is talk about Jesus. and Like they're only just thinking about spiritual things all the time. And I try and talk about what I saw on Netflix, and they don't have a television. (laughs) 
Let, let's put a little context. Do we need to function well in the world in which God has placed us? Yeah. But kids, help me out here. Now, we, we live in America where we have governors and presidents, but let's say we have kings, all right? Would it be better to be the king of Indiana or the king of the United States? Which one would be a more important job? What do you think? United States? How many of you think United States? How many of you think Indiana? Here's what he's getting at. Jesus is not less of a king because it's not an earthly kingdom. It's a greater kingship. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 says, He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. In heaven, on earth, under the earth. Contemplate this. Every demon in hell is subject to the authority of Jesus Christ. He is over all things. By the way, if he can rule over every... I'm going to redeem myself a little bit. If he can rule over every demon in hell, he's also sovereign over every Republican and Democrat. Verse 6. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Again, in the ears of the Hebrew people hearing this, this is shocking. Hear them sort of respond and say to us, all that we have known was this old covenant, this law, these sacrifices. This is how we know our God. This is how we know ourselves. The response from the writer of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. Christ is better. His sacrifice is a better sacrifice. His priesthood is better. This new covenant is built on better promises. Now, let's be careful, church. Be careful not to look with condescension on the old covenant that God made with his people. Who made it with the people? God. So did God make a mistake in the old covenant? No. When he says he finds fault with it, it's not because it is lacking or sinful. It's because it's just incomplete. It was pointing to something. It was pointing to a new covenant that was coming. In fact, I love that the writer of the Hebrews right here points us backwards to Jeremiah. The, the prophet in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, chapter 31, and these verses are taken from 31 through 34. We find them in Hebrews 8. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. There it is. There's the promise right there in the old that there's a new covenant coming. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Did you hear that if you do this, I will do that nature of this covenant? They, they failed and they fell short, and therefore I showed no concern for them. God did not abandon his people. Read uh, Romans chapter 9, and that makes that really clear. Verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I want to just touch on a couple of these and then come back next week, and we're going to fill out the picture a little bit more. But verse 10, he uses a a Jewish poetic turn of phrase here when he says, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Oftentimes you see, especially in Jewish poetry, where they will say the same thing, but they kind of flip it around and and say it a little bit differently. So we we see in in each half of that, I, I will put my laws in their minds, and the second one it says, in their hearts, uh, and it, this idea of writing them, commun- he's saying the same thing twice. In other words, this is going to be an internal covenant. The first covenant was an external covenant, but this new covenant will be a covenant people who is first and foremost defined by an internal work of God upon their hearts, not man's external, external conformity. Not a keeping of the law, Not where you can just look at them and see that they all look the same. You can still see this in Orthodox Jews. In fact, if you've ever been to a big city, because we don't have a lot of Orthodox Jews living in Shipshawana, but you go to like New York or Chicago, and and you see an Orthodox Jew walking down the street, and for just a second, come on, I think that's an Amish guy. right? Because these two communities have a real similar look that's going on. He says that's not what's going to define them. This new covenant people will not be defined by the external things. Now, one of the arguments that gets pushed back against the Scripture and against Christians who actually believe the Scripture, which is a really unpopular position to be in today, you've probably heard this, you don't really believe all of the Bible because you wear clothes of mixed fabrics. Anybody ever heard that argument before? If you believe the Bible, you wouldn't wear clothes with mixed fabrics. By the way, can I, can I just tell you, anytime someone says that to you, in fact, I would argue every time someone says that to you, it's a setup that they're going to tell you there's a certain part of the Bible that they don't like, and you should be able to throw that out because you don't wear clothes of just one fabric. All right, listen to me. In the Old Covenant, those external conformities defined you. They defined what it meant to be part of the people of God. There were requirements for Jewish people, how they dress, what their hairstyle was to look like, what their food was to look like, what their drink was to look like, what their head coverings were to look like. And again, you still see this in some Orthodox communities today. But that is not the new covenant. Are you listening to me, church? The new covenant begins not with external conformity, but with an inner work of regeneration. That God takes a dead heart and makes it alive. God takes a heart of stone and makes it soft. God takes a mind that is twisted and wrapped around the ways of this world and now gives us the mind of Christ. And everything that we do, everything that looks like conformity that comes out of that is secondary. It's because we've been changed, not so that we might be accepted. Here's why this is super important. Some of you are like, I don't even know why you're hammering on this so much. Listen, any church that requires, especially begins with requiring external conformity. Now, I'm not talking about the moral law of God, right? So if you're killing your neighbor and we're like, you know what? We'd rather you didn't. I think that's a mistake, right? 
If your church says that, you should find a different church. I'm talking about things like dress and what you drive and what you do with your kids with regard to school. What you do with your kids with regard to vaccinations. Whether you wear a mask when you go to Walmart or not. Right? We're getting close enough to home. Anytime we start requiring conformity to what we say, we're pointing to the wrong covenant. That was the old covenant where we were defined by those things. Now we are defined by Christ within us, the hope of glory. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, this is jarring. For the last 2,000 years, the Jewish people had held on in dark times to this old covenant. And he says this, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, come on, what's your Bible say? Obsolete. Just let your heart settle on that for just a second. Everything that you've held on to for 2,000 years as a people, in a moment, you're being told is obsolete. Speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is already vanishing away. By the time he writes this, some of the things that were so central to the faith of the Jewish people have disappeared. This glorious temple that the disciples of Jesus stood in awe and wonder and said, Isn't this magnificent? This is the center of all Jewish worship. And Jesus says, yeah, it's great. Not a single stone is going to be left on top of another one. By the time this is written, it's already fading away. Today, if you go, there's only one wall remaining. And the Jewish people still flock to it. By the time this is written, the symbol of the presence of God among his people, the Ark of the Covenant, has strangely disappeared. This was the symbol of God's presence with his people. This is the center of everything. It was, it was the central object within the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go in once a year, and now it's gone. This old covenant is already fading away. Next week, we're going to be looking at, in more depth, this new covenant. And this, this beautiful and strange Encouragement where no one's going to have to say to another one, know the Lord. He's talking about experiential knowing. Oh man, there's this great thing. You need to come experience the Lord. You know why? Because nobody can do that for you. Just give you a little, little glimpse into next week. Nobody can experience the presence of God. No one can make your heart come alive through the gospel. No one can cause intimacy with you and the Holy Spirit. I can't tell you, know the Lord. It has to be between you and God. Oh, but he has shed abroad his spirit within our hearts. Albert Moeller, in commenting on this, uh, Albert Moeller is president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says this, one of the most common mistakes made by Christians today in reading the Old Testament is as if it's someone else's book. It was first for Israel, but it is absolutely for us today. The writer to the Hebrew people was teaching them in this book, how is it, as members of the New Covenant, do we read the Old Testament? 
What's the lens through which we view that? What are we meant to do on this side of the cross of Christ? Here's what we're meant to do. We're meant to look back into the Old Testament and say we should have seen that all along. It was there. This promise of a new covenant, this promise of a coming Messiah, the suffering servant, we should have seen this all along. In fact, Jesus points to the Old Testament. Some of us who are evangelical Christians, evangelical just means gospel-centered which most people who call them evangelical are not actually evangelical, gospel-centered. Jesus points to the Old Testament, which a lot of evangelicals want to, to steal a popular preacher's term, unhitch from the modern Christian view. And we say, no, no, we're people of the New Testament. Only Jesus points to the Old Testament scriptures, and he says it to the people who cherished those scriptures, who guarded those scriptures, by the way, who memorized those scriptures, the Pharisees, more than you have ever memorized your Bible, I promise you. And he says to them, John chapter 5, verse 39, you study the scriptures. Which scriptures, Old Testament or New? Old diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. This entire story has been pointing to Jesus. We should have seen this all along. In the New Covenant, we look to Christ in all things. Christ, the greater Abraham, the origin, the father of all of God's people. Christ, the greater Moses, the deliverer of God's people, the greater David, the king over God's people, the greater priest and sacrifice. Remember, for 2,000 years, they had had a priesthood and sacrifices until suddenly in the New Testament, we hear John the baptizer proclaim and point to Jesus and say some of the most familiar words in an unfamiliar context, behold the Lamb of God. The lamb was the sacrifice that they were used to seeing sacrificed on behalf of the sins of the people. And he points to a person and says, that's the better lamb. Rather than sacrifices offered every day, Jesus on the cross proclaimed, it is finished. The writer of the Hebrews points us back to the prophet Jeremiah and says, it was here all along. We should have seen it. It was foreshadowed in all of the old covenant. It's the fulfillment of all of the Old Covenant. As we wrap it up, I want you to just think of this. Just like us, the people to whom this letter was written had seen it. They had seen the glory of Christ. They they had seen that He is the perfection, the fulfillment of all that had come before. So why did they need to hear it and why do we need to hear it? And I think the simple answer is sometimes we just need to be reminded It's so easy to fall into old habits. It's so easy to fall into old ruts and routines, old idols that have not lost their appeal. And when when dark days come, when difficult times come, oh, how quickly do we look to them again. Be reminded, look to Christ. Trust in Christ. Cling to Christ. To borrow the words from verse 1, what's the point of all this? Here it is. In Christ, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Let's pray together.
almighty creator of heaven and earth, giver of life, sustainer of life, the one by whom his word goes forth and light and life come from nothing, whose will rules sovereignly over all things, to you, O God, we confess our deep need for you, our overwhelming inadequacy. God, how often do we fall short of your glory? How often do our hearts and frail minds seem to miss or mess up everything in the moment? So we begin in coming before you by saying, oh God, we are desperate for you. Even those who have been adopted in Christ, we are still in desperate need of a Savior. We're in desperate need of an intercessor who right now pleads our case before the Father in heaven. We're in desperate need of a sanctuary, a true sanctuary, where our sins are forever covered, where our salvation is forever accomplished. But we confess, those of us who believe, we confess before you, Almighty God, how quickly our hearts long for another. Oh, the unfaithfulness in our hearts towards you. The deceitfulness of sin that so easily entangles us. And we pray in light of this scripture, in light of these promises, this better covenant, God, would you help us by the sustaining power of your spirit within us to trust in Christ. When we find that our eyes have fallen to the things of this world, would you lift them again? to where Christ is seated at the right hand of majesty on high. Where our hope and salvation are secure. I want you to just remain in an attitude of prayer. And I want to ask you a couple questions for your heart to just sort of do some business with God this morning. If somebody asked you, what is it that defines your life? Would your relationship with God even be on the radar? If it is, if you're thinking about Christianity, is it external things that you do, or is it the evidence of internal work that you have seen God do within your heart? That would remind us if it's external, we're pointing to the wrong covenant. Trust in Christ. What do you cling to in tough times? When your dark night of the soul comes, what is it that you run to? Is it love, affection, family, work, alcohol, a myriad of other things? Or is it Christ? Is it anchored in the fact that you have been adopted and bought with the precious blood of the Lamb? Is it Christ or something else? And if it's something else, repent of that. Let's put our finger on it. Where are you right now being unfaithful to God's righteous law that he has written on your heart? 
That's the promise of the new covenant. I'm going to write my law on your heart, and you know that in your life you are stepping over that line into that which God would forbid. Where are you doing that? And I would beg you, confess it right now. That starts right now between you and God. God, you know my sin. You know the desperateness that is within me. And as we repent and turn from that, James 5, we confess it to one another. You find another brother or sister in Christ and you confess it to them today. And yet maybe you're here and you're not a believer at all. You don't actually believe in God. You don't believe in Jesus. You don't believe in the Bible. A friend invited you to breakfast and then suckered you into coming to church this morning. I would ask, are you a follower of Christ? Maybe you've been here a long time. Are you a follower of Christ? Is there an internal evidence or is there just external evidence? Is there lots of outside things that you're doing but your heart testifies against you? Maybe you're here and your sin and your past haunt you. In fact, you want nothing more than that promise that we read just at the end to hear the righteous judge of the universe say to you, I will remember their sins no more. But listen to me, that's only found in Christ. That's not found because you're basically a good person and God decided to be nice to you on a certain day. Imagine a courtroom where a judge sits in judgment over a serial killer. A serial killer whose mom testifies for him, listen, he's, he's basically a, a good boy. He, he was such a good little boy. You should have mercy on him. And the judge says, you know what? I think he basically is a good person and I'm feeling nice today. I'm going to give you a pass. That would not be a righteous judge. And God is a righteous judge. Every sin will be fully paid for, either by you in all eternity, or it will be laid on Christ. The perfect sacrifice. So whether you are new to the faith or you are cold in your faith, here's the same call, confess your sin. Confess it to God, and then confess it to a brother and sister, and then turn from it. Repent is the biblical word from that. We put off the old and we put on the new. Then get connected and ask for help. The biblical word for that is fellowship. Let other brothers and sisters into your mess, into your life. Would you stand together with me? I want to just give you a moment to respond to this. Worship team, if you'd come on up. Uh, those of you who have been here for a while, like you know the drill. Thanks to COVID, we're not passing offering buckets and things like that. So there's boxes at the front and the back as we sing our closing song you can give there. But I want you to kind of push that aside for just a second. Because there's some people in this room who need to do some serious business with God. You look at your entire Christian life and the only evidence that you can see is external. And you know the deep, dark resource, recesses of your heart, and you're not actually sure your heart's been changed. And I would call you with words from the Scripture, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith.
before we sing, before we give, I want you to stand before God. And maybe this is your morning to say, God, save me. God, give me a new heart. God, give me a new mind. And if that's you, I want you to pray that right now. And before you leave this place, I want you to come and talk with one of us. It doesn't have to be a pastor. I would love to have that conversation with you, but you could literally turn around to the person sitting behind you and say, that was me this morning. How do I walk out of that? It's called fellowship. It's koinonia between brothers and sisters. So let's bow before the Lord. Wherever you're at, I want you to just do business with him for the next couple of minutes, and then we'll sing together. God, you alone are our hope. You alone are our salvation, and so we trust in no other. Lord, let your blessing and benediction now be on your people. May the Lord bless you and keep you. As you go from this place, may he be gracious to you. May he give you peace. May he cause you to be light in the midst of darkness claim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. Thanks for joining our online service. We pray it was a blessing to you. We are grateful for these resources God has provided, especially in this time of pandemic and separation. If you'd like to find out more about EWC and give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.